Last week uh, in my message and in the introduction, I mentioned Augustine and his work, The the City of God, as we were talking about uh, the two cities, the city of God and the the city of man. Uh, Augustine was one of the uh, greatest theologians that has ever walked this earth, but he wasn't always a theologian. Uh, In fact, in his book, Confessions, he uh, talks about his uh, life as a young man, and it was a wild life. We won't talk about it here. He was, uh, he was explicit in, in things that uh, he was involved in. He famously prayed, Lord, make me chaste, only not yet. And that was the kind of life he lived. It was this passage that God used, though, to awaken his soul. Uh, He uh, saw a copy of the Scripture. He picked it up, and it opened to the 13th chapter of Romans. And he began reading in this passage. And he was convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit using his word. So let's give our attention to this portion of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 8 of Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, you have used this portion of your word powerfully ever since it was given, ever since it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul. And so we ask that you would do that again, that you would use it in our hearts, 
whatever portion it is that, that we need to convict us, to convince us, to encourage us, to comfort us. And Lord, will you do that by your Spirit? We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, just by way of remembering the context here, uh, last week we had, we had talked about, because he talked about the, the role of government, and uh, he did that because here are Christians living under uh, a Roman regime and wondering, how do we do this? How in the world, as Christians, do we function in this way? And so he told them. He told them there is a way, as Christians, as you, you submit to your government, not because it's righteous, but because no government is in its place unless God put them there. Now, in the context of that, he, he says in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, and, and so on. So he's talking about a very practical way to function. And then he has a segue with that owing others, and he goes right into the debt that we owe. So he, is, he sandwiched that section uh, about the government with passages about love for one another. So look at, at this debt that, that we owe, because ultimately it is our, our calling. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, in that context, when he had said that they are to uh, pay taxes and so on, some ha have interpreted this verse, owe no one anything except to love one another, uh, to, to say, okay, well, that means in our life there is never a time when we can borrow anything from anyone else. And while I, I have re respect for that particular view, and that's not a bad way to live, uh, I, I, I don't know that it's, uh, it's going completely there because the the, the context and what he uh, is talking about is that basically we, we always pay back what we owe as opposed to being uh, forbidden to ever owe. So, so I would lean toward that interpretation that, look, if you, if you borrow something, here's the Christian way of doing it, you pay back. If you're you know, non-Christian and you, you borrow something, you still should pay people back but he says, look, as a Christian, this is absolutely how you ought to live. So Paul connects that idea that uh, uh, in terms of debt with a new concept, and that's basically, there is a debt, though, that you will always owe, and that you can never completely pay off and it's not the debt of sin for the believer 
Because we might tend to think that, oh yeah, I, I, I owe this, this great debt of, of sin and so on. Well, we just sang about how, how completely paid off that is. And so from a, a Christian perspective that that shouldn't be what we think about when we think about what we, we owe. But he's saying, look, there is a debt that by virtue of the fact that you are a, a child of the living God, you owe to others. And it's a debt of love for each other. And he's showing that, that love is less about being infatuated with someone else than it is about godly duty. It's, it's not about others deserving love or being lovable, but loving others is the very fabric of what it is to be a believer. And that's the idea, going back to chapter 12, of this is the transformed mind. This is the non-conformed to this world life is a life that's shaped by this gospel will be one that expresses love to others. Anybody that's done any study in, in counseling or, or read books about counseling has uh, seen this or uh, a similar story of uh, uh, typically it, it goes this way. Um, there is a, a man who uh, is living in what he considers to be a, a loveless marriage. Out of desperation, he goes to uh, the divorce lawyer and says, I want to file papers divorce papers on my wife. The divorce lawyer strategically says this. Well, let's do this. Um, for now, because things are, are so crazy in your home, for now, go home and uh, let things calm down for about a, a month. Help around the house Listen to your wife. Be present for her. Do those things that, that you think will, will calm things down in the house. And then in a month, we'll drop the papers on her and she'll never be expecting it. A month later, the divorce lawyer actually calls the man. I have the papers ready. Are you ready to present them to your wife? And he says, no way. I've, I love that woman. I've begun to, to really love her. I'm not interested in divorce. Well, what's the, the point of the story, obviously, is this. That it's not that you're Action should follow your feelings. But feelings will follow those right actions. And so it is as we, we love others, this is a call from God. 
not because you feel like loving those around you or because they're so lovable that we just can't help ourselves. That's not the test. The test is ultimately for those that are not lovable or not acting in a lovable way. And that's what makes Christian love for others absolutely unique from that which the world offers to us. The world would say, it is about your feelings. And if you, if, if you don't feel it, don't do it. That's hypocritical. And yet the scripture says, no, no. No, that's, that's who you are. Because the one that dwells in you loved you when you didn't deserve it. That's what we've been singing about and, and seeing in the scripture all day long. So he brings out some of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you remember, in the, in the Ten Commandments, uh, that you have the two tables of the law. Now, one way to remember is the you know, picture, I think this was probably from the movie uh, with Moses, the Ten Commandments, but if you picture the two tablets, I'm sure that's pretty much the way it happened, right? Uh, the two tablets, and, but we talk about the two tables of the law, and in those two tables, uh, in the first table of the law, are particularly those things that are vertical toward God. That's the first four commandments. And then the, the second table of the law uh, are those toward one another. Now, obviously, there, there's overlap between the two. But so the last six are particularly toward others. So here he, he quotes uh, some of the, the, those from the second table of the law, adultery, murder, stealing, coveting, and then he says, uh, one who loves does no wrong to the neighbor. We will be a safe place for our neighbor. So he emphasizes, look, you can't do those things and pretend like you're loving your neighbor, and that's why God gave those to us, to show us. Those things are, are not acceptable now, the tendency is that, that people, when they talk about uh, God's love and God's law, is to put them in separate places. But here, what we see in this, this passage and really throughout the Scripture is, no, no, they're together. Because when you, when you love others, he says, you're keeping the law. And then Jesus, back in John 13, says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's what Jesus says the world is noticing about believers. And by the way, if we don't have love for one another, they notice that even more quickly. Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of the fathers of our denomination and a, a, a theologian, pastor, said this, we must never forget that the final apologetic uh, for the defense of the faith and a, 
uh, apologetics are just the defense of the faith. He says the final and basically the best one, which Jesus gives, is the observable love of Christians. So he says, look, and, and he was uh, one that was into talking with unbelievers and trying to give convincing arguments and, and all of those things, and you read his books, and, they're, you know, and they are convincing, but his point was always this. Look, we can, we can do all that, but the final apologetic, the most effective apologetic, is when others see us showing love toward them and others. You know, that can't be denied. People can't get around that. And they can't explain it if, if we are loving those that, that don't seem to deserve the love. You know, that's, that's our mission journeys. I was thinking of that this week. Uh, we had a number of our, our youth and uh, uh, Brendan, our youth director on, in servanthood, and they were serving people this week. And I heard some, some neat testimony of what God was teaching the kids by doing that. And I thought, what a testimony to, to those who were being served to see middle school youth who, what do, you, what do you like to do in the summer? Well, sleep in and go to the pool and stay up late and then sleep in again. And, you know, at least that's what I wanted to. I'm not putting anybody down when I was a middle schooler. And what a testimony, though, that, that must have been to many to see middle school youth out serving in the summertime, not getting paid for it. That's our, our Spain team. It's our Camp Jam. Our team's going to Nicaragua and New York. See, that's the idea is that, that this shows the world something that they have a hard time explaining. Why, why do that? I've been asked that, that question in other countries. What are, you, what are you doing here? You know, why? You, wait a minute. You, you pay your own way? Your church pays for you to come and do this? Why? And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. So that's our calling, but notice that Paul talks about and the urgency of that calling. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, so what's that mean? The, the time's at hand. Well, the easy way to remember it is this, or to, to think about it is this. We are closer to the time when Jesus will return than Moses or David was or Paul was. That's just the easiest way to remember. John Stott says it this way. What the apostles did know was that the kingdom of God came with Jesus. That the decisive salvation 
events which established it, the kingdom, his death, resurrection, exaltation, and gift of the Spirit, had already taken place. So they said, okay, these things that established the kingdom have happened. And that God had, this is a great phrase, that God had nothing on his calendar before the second coming. It would be the next and culminating event. So you have Jesus coming and doing his work and accomplishing it. And then what's the next big thing? He comes again. And so, so that's what he's saying here. But Paul is saying, look, we're getting ever closer to that. Now, we are way closer to it than Paul was. But he, he talks about an, an urgency. And this, you know, the, the need to, to wake up. I, when I, I saw that, I thought of uh, one of the uh, Christian artists from when I was first in, in the ministry a long time ago, uh, Keith Green. And he had a song called Asleep in the Light. And in that song, basically, he was saying, we, we mustn't, we as the church have the light. We mustn't be asleep in that light. And that, that's basically what, what Paul is saying here. I want to give you a diagnostic question. If you knew your life here on this earth was going to be over next Saturday, now you can imagine it any way you want. Uh, either you're going to die next Saturday or Jesus is going to come next Saturday. If that was going to be the case and you somehow knew that, How would it change the next five days in your life? What would you do that you hadn't planned to do? What would you not do that you had planned to do or maybe were tempted to do? Now, obviously, that's a, a theoretical question. I'm glad God doesn't do it that way. But that question, when I thought about it, it penetrated me. Paul wants us to live in that conscious understanding that, look, it could be. We need to wake up because we are getting ever closer to that moment. And then he goes on to, to talk about uh, that which can block our calling, is the way I put it, uh, verse, the last part of verse 12. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So the first thing, notice he talks about the armor of light. When do you put on armor? When you're going to go into battle. So he, he starts with that just to say, look, this is a battle uh, that, that we are in in order 
to be living in this world. And then he uses um, words of taking off, like you would clothing, and putting on, like you would with clothing. And he, he likes to use those kinds of, of contrasts. So what do, you, what do you take off? Well, he says, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, uh, sensuality. So if you're visiting with us, you say, oh, this church is against those things, I take it, yeah? Well, here's what I want you to notice about that. I mean, those seem so obvious. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who had been rescued out of darkness. And he's saying, you got to put those off. If you're involved in, in, in those things, he's talking to the church. And so there's some takeaways from that. One of them is if you're struggling with those things, But you're a believer? Yeah, it's serious. He says, that's not who you are any longer. But I also want you to think in these terms. It's serious, but it's not hopeless. The church, there were people in the church back then struggling with those, or he wouldn't have addressed it in that way. So don't give up and say, I, I, I must not even be a Christian because these are temptations. But don't give in because he says we've got to put, take those off. And then, lest you take pride by saying, oh, well, that's good, you know, I'm I'm not in orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality. Whew, you know, at least he's not talking to me. <laughs> then he says, quarreling and jealousy. He's taking in everybody here. Everybody. And he says, look, it's not just these these dramatic sins that where we should be different from the world. But how can we talk about loving others if there's quarreling and jealousy among us? He says it can't be. These are things that will deny that you are who you say you are. And if you walk in works of darkness, you're walking in a way that denies you belong to Christ. We cannot live as if Jesus' death and resurrection never took place. Remember, the final apologetic to our world is that love. And we cannot love others if we were involved in these things. And then we see that which empowers our calling. It's the only remedy. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's the contrast again. And, you know, just think of the, the idea of, of clothing identifying you. You know, earlier today when we were getting ready to start the service, uh, even if you're visiting with us, I suspect you could have identified who was in the choir. Right? They walked in. Why, how could you identify? You hadn't heard them sing or anything. Well, obviously because of what they were clothed in. That was, that was their identity of what they were to do. And Paul is saying, you know what? Here's, here's our only hope in this. We can't just stop with put off those things because that makes it about our works and so on. In fact, we aren't capable of doing that just by ourselves. Our only hope is to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what's this mean? It's, it's not just coming to Christ in the first place. So here's the thing. You, you come to Christ, you trust in him alone for your eternal life, then you have put on Christ. But then what I think Paul is talking about here is, but we've got to do it every day. Put on Christ. Not, not become a Christian every day but preach that gospel to ourself every day. Make that choice that I am taking off that clothing and putting on Christ because he is my true identity. That's the transformed mind, the non-conformed to the world life, and that's going to stand out. Now, if Francis Schaeffer was right, that the final apologetic for the defense of the faith which Jesus gives us is the observable love of Christians. What does that look like? Uh, I'm going to be away in July on sabbatical. Those of you that are members uh, know that. But when I get back from sabbatical in August, I'm, I'm going to uh, introduce to you our vision 2022. We're, we had Vision 2017, it is 2017, and I'm going to bring out 2022. Um, don't worry, it, it is not radically different. We're not, you know, doing a 180 or anything like that. Um, but there are additions, and there are things that have expanded in, in that. Here's one of the things, though, that is in Vision 2022. Let me give you a, a preview. We, the church, will be involved in ministries of mercy in the name of Christ as deeds ministries to complement our words. Our fellowship with one another, which will be reflected in our ministries, should be a unique witness to our, our, our world of our love for one another. When someone from our community looks at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church from a distance, 
or attends a ministry event, we desire for them to see a shockingly beautiful love and acceptance for them and for one another. A love that will point them not to us, but to Jesus Christ. That's what it will look like. That's who we want to be. And if we do that, if, if they see a shockingly beautiful love and acceptance for them and for one another, it will be the most powerful witness possible. Let's pray to that end. Lord, that is only possible as you enable us to put on Christ. Will you do that, Lord? Will you empower us by your Spirit to love as Christ who is in us first loved us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.